0: I'm here today with uh, Jeff Detweiler, who is CEO of all of the Long and Foster companies. And uh, welcome, Jeff. Thanks, John. I'm yeah. so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're it's here excited. Well. I know. It's, yeah. I, I know. We're going to have some fun. So, Jeff, I guess t- I'm, I'm, I'm curious to learn. Tell us a little bit about your career and uh, how did you end up as um, CEO of Long and Foster companies?
1: Well, uh, I'll try to make that somewhat quick if I can. Sure. Uh, it, It's like so many other things. You kind of fall into it. It just sort of unfolds in front of you. But uh, uh, when I graduated, um, I went back to the Midwest, uh, and I worked there for five years, Mm -hmm. Uh, ended up uh, taking a job with another bank in the Midwest, in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. Uh, then went to Wall Street in New York for five years, went out to uh... southern california for five years and then came here wow. and it was just a progression in terms of uh... mostly banking and moving for uh, higher level positions sure. and uh... different types of uh... roles in companies mm-hmm. but uh... i share with you where they were is because it's really been interesting uh, Working in on both coasts and the Midwest, and it's amazing. You might as well be in different countries. Absolutely. When you do that, yeah. well, you you could go from Northern Virginia to Shenandoah County in Virginia, and two different countries. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't have to go far to for find sure. a whole new world. Yeah. So, so you graduated from Princeton in '83. Yeah. Yes. And then you went out to the Midwest for five Correct. years. Correct. And then. When you got to Wall Street, I'm I'm just curious, because you see the movies and you see the pressure and all that. I mean, how did did you, coming from the Midwest to Wall Street, how did that impact you?
1: Well, uh, so just to set the stage on that a little bit more so Mm -hmm. is that I had been in the Midwest. I was originally uh, in Michigan, right outside of Detroit. That's where I had gone to high school. And so I kind of went back home. I had some connections there Mm -hmm. and I got into the world of banking there. Went to Minneapolis after that. There's a thing called, Minnesota Nice, yeah. And I spent ten years in uh, in Minnesota, and there is a Minnesota Nice. I'm telling you. And uh, I left Minnesota and went to Wall Street. Uh, The firm I was working with was a very advanced, innovative securities firm. Mm-hmm. We structured and created mortgage-backed securities. We were the largest uh, mortgage-backed security issuer in the world next to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. And we really innovated a lot of the jumbo loan market and a lot of the other loan products that are out there today. But I, uh, my working sphere were really all the Wall Street firms. So they mm-hmm. would underwrite our deals that we would structure. They would sell the deals to investors right. that we structure. So uh, it was one of those situations, and you know in your career, you sit there and you say, I can do that. I think I can do that, what that other person is doing. (laughs) I think I can do that. And so I said, boy, I, I just, I think I can do that. And I had the same Uh, Wall Street is a really mysterious, pseudo-glamorous, but kind of scary place from the outside looking in, Yeah. right? And I said, I can do this. I want to go there. So I went there in 2000 after 15 years of Mm -hmm. working, but more importantly, after 10 years of being in Minnesota Nice. Yeah. There is no such thing as Wall Street nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, it's not a secret. There is right. no Wall Street nice. So right. uh, five years at Wall Street, it's a uh, It's a highly competitive, it is a political, it is a rough and tough world. Yeah. And the thing that struck me the most uh, after five years, why I chose to leave is that um, the team concept mm-hmm. is is really hard to come by. Now I think some firms are probably really good at teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is a firm that comes to mind, and mm-hmm. things like that of really being good with teams. But but I know how it is. It's uh, everyone's there. There is uh, there's a dollar there. Right. There's a dollar that's going to be paid out and you all go get yours. And so it's, it's rough. And it's like, if I can take that dollar away from you, I get it and you don't get it, but there's not $2 to get, there's $1 and you got to go get it. And so it's really tough, the team environment. And I didn't care for that. And so after five years, uh, I chose to go to another part of the country. I just wanted to start something new. Right. uh, So you went to California from Wall Street. So that's,
0: that's, That's a whole different world. Oh,
1: it it is a different – it might as well be a different country for sure. You know, the Wall Street thing is that uh, I had – Um, I had my fourth child when we were living in New Jersey and I was working on Wall Street. uh, Mm -hmm. And so I had four young kids at the time. During that point in time, uh, 9-11 occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were 13 parents in my kid's little elementary school that passed away that horrible day. Uh, My neighbor passed away uh, that day. Um, There were, for two weeks straight, we went to funerals and wakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was is just it was a time you never want to revisit by any means but then also the next thing that happened was the anthrax scare if you Mm -hmm. remember that so it emanated from we actually lived in Princeton New Jersey and Mm -hmm. I commuted to uh, New York every day Mm -hmm. Uh, and the anthrax scare emanated from uh, Nassau Street which is right downtown Princeton and so we were all so edgy it was just such a tough time and you combine kind of the work environment Mm -hmm. and not a real great great team environment Mm -hmm. uh, on Wall Street. uh, Combine what was happening, you know, personally. It was a lot for my wife and for my family. And so we said after about five years, look, we're in a good place. Let's, uh, let's look around and figure out where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Southern California showed up on the map for us right. and, uh, had knew some people out there. And I ended we ended up going out there and it was just, you couldn't have found a more different place to be. And that's what you needed at the time. Undoubtedly. Yeah. And, and my wife and kids needed a different place. Right. And, uh, so the, uh, uh so it, it was a great, Five years for us in Southern California. Yeah, uh, my family lived there for about eight years. I spent three years commuting back and forth from Northern Virginia to California while mm-hmm. I was working here at uh, at Long and Right,
0: I remember that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, I thought you were nuts. That was. Uh... <laughs> uh, I was.
1: I was. That I have a record. So my record, uh, like my <clears throat> claim to fame, the Iron Man record, is I did fifty-two Sunday night red eyes in a row. Oh. Oh, my gosh. That is that <coughs> is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah. you just have to kind of desensitize yourself to it. So yeah. I, during that uh, period of time of commuting, you know, originally you start out, you know, it's maybe like Thursday afternoon you go back and right. you come back. Monday morning, yeah. uh, well, you give up three hours from the West Coast to the East Coast, so then you start leaving Sunday night. Yeah. And then... Uh, Things start getting crazy in our industry, and so it ended up, I'd go home on Friday afternoons. Yes. I'd get to my house at about 8 o'clock California time, which is about 11 o'clock. PM our time, right. and then have dinner on Sunday and head to the airport yeah. and then get back, stop, take a shower in Reston at yeah. the town center, and then get into Chantilly for uh, the opening bell on Monday morning.
0: Yeah, that's a commitment. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So when did, so your your wife and kids obviously were enjoying living in California, yeah. and they obviously, just based on what you've told us, were not ready to uh,
1: move to the East Coast. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, not they, wanted to, they wanted to stay there.
1: Yeah, I had, uh, you know, my son was, I think when I first came, my son was a senior in high school, and so yeah. we didn't want to move for that. Makes sense. And then I had a, my next year, oldest is, is a daughter, and she was an athlete. And uh, uh, she was, you know, she would have had three. She had her sophomore, junior, senior year, and I didn't want to leave till after that. Makes perfect uh, sense. But... Uh, our family story that uh, my wife seems to deny is that <laughs> my daughter was going into her senior year. Uh, she was basketball star at the high school and uh, played other sports. And so the last thing they wanted to do is see her leave. Right. And uh, my wife came to me and she said you know what, we're all ready to come to Northern Virginia and let's get back together. I said, I can't believe that Jacqueline really wants to leave before her senior year. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she's fine with that. (laughs) Well, come to find out after I read my daughter's first essay at Langley High School about how her heart Felt like it got ripped out when I moved her from Southern California to Northern Virginia her senior year. So uh, there was a little uh, disclosure issue between my wife and I at that point. I see that.
0: I see that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that goes back to uh, Stephen Covey's rule number five or habit number five that I preach – every day in my organization, which is seek first to understand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to
1: jot that down on my list of good things to know. Yeah,
0: yeah seek first to understand and then be understood. Yeah. Without so you, doubt. Yeah, you learned so,
1: that. So anyways, nonetheless, she did a great job her senior year here. Wonderful. I had two younger kids that came. Uh, And uh, we're in middle school and elementary school, and so they adjusted and things like Mm -hmm. that. But it is interesting, you know, you're you're on the different coasts and in the middle of the country. And uh, uh, all I know is you can take the kid out of California, but you can't take California out of the kid. And that's a good thing, I think. I I think it is. Yeah. I I think it is. Yeah,
0: there's a a little more mm -hmm. of a laid-back attitude. You know, we were talking before we uh, turned on the microphones about my two kids, and I have one— kid with a california personality and i have another kid with a new york personality yeah. so i've got it all yeah under one roof but yeah. uh there's i think there's something to be said with uh take life as it is
1: it, it is it's uh, it's an outdoor life it's mm-hmm. a really active life it's uh it's more chill yeah. than it is kind of tense yeah and um and they continue to be that way. They're pretty – they're very committed to their their work now, their mm-hmm. careers and things like that. But uh, all of them want to get back to – all but one of them want to get back to California in some way, shape, or form. Right. That's One,
0: one of them is back in California. So yeah. let's talk about your
1: kids for yeah. a second okay. so while we're on that. So you've
0: got uh, – so all your kids went to college. Uh, three of them went to college, went, yep. and then one of them did not. And then they've they've they're back at home with you.
1: Yeah. So, so how did uh, that happen? So well, uh, combination uh, between just kind of moving back home to get started in your career, and you know being ready to move out then, right. and this whole COVID thing hit, and yeah. uh, uh, everybody just locked down, and so all four of our kids were at our home. Uh, and I will tell you, it, it I know a lot of people have had such a horrible time, and 2020 you know Mm -hmm. working through uh covid and all the issues and Mm -hmm. things like that and i'll tell you i'm sensitive to everybody's personal situation people have lost people and and i feel for them but uh personally it may end up being one of the best personal years in my life because right. it was an opportunity for the, the six of us to spend a lot of time together. Uh, everybody's doing constructive stuff, you know, mm-hmm. work-wise, working from home, but, uh, you know, we, we we had each other and that was it. So, mm-hmm. And what I know, all of them were adults, mm-hmm. right? And so... Uh, you know, with six people, there's always enough for a party yeah. any time. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. I, I think a lot
0: of people uh, share your sentiment. I mean, I, I'm, I spend most of my days on you know, video meetings with homeowners who want to either build a new house or buy a house, and they many of them have kids. They have families and they don't have enough space in their home. And they're all appreciating the change in our culture and the time that they have at the dinner table at night and the time they have together. And I feel, I feel the same way. So it's really been a good thing. So uh, that's
1: fantastic.
0: So, so uh, what? You so your one daughter is back in California.
1: Yep, my youngest is back in California. She, she's going to San Diego State University. She's a sophomore there. Wonderful. Loves it. You know, yeah. she's taking all her classes virtual. She said, "Dad, I do have this uh, one class that I can't take online. I have to take it in person." And I was like, "Well." Hooray, you know, we're finally getting, you know, yeah. our money's worth. You yeah. know, you get to go into <laughs> class. I said, tell me about this class. She goes, it's surfing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so And I I said, do I pay the same money for a credit hour of surfing as I do for economics? And yeah. she said yes. Yeah, so, but she's went. back, and she's loving it. Awesome, awesome. So, awesome.
0: so which, what's your favorite part about being a father? You obviously love it. You love fatherhood.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm a better father of older children than I am of younger children. Yeah. Uh, my wife is certainly the superstar there with younger children. Uh, mm-hmm. I think just uh, the ability to engage uh, – people that you really care about to an nth degree. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the love that one has for their kids can uh, surpass anything, you know, it's like no judgment, no anything, you'll do anything for them. And, um, and so I just, I love the idea of seeing them kind of really develop and blossom and unfold. And I can actually help them out more now. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they ask questions. Mm -hmm. I don't, push anything on them you know mm-hmm. I allow them to come to me if they choose to mm-hmm. and to ask uh, career questions and mm-hmm. work related questions and and life questions and so we just have great conversations and we always have a lot of fun there's a lot of teasing that goes on yeah. in my family and so yeah we have I we could a lot totally that. Uh, appreciate that yeah. I, I think
0: all families yeah. with big personalities have uh some internal competition of of teasing is yeah. uh, how it a lot of times yeah, show your love exactly. through teasing. If they're not teasing you, they don't care about <laughs> right? it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, that's fantastic. We're going to take a quick break, Jeff. And when we come back, I want to hear about when you first uh, decided that you wanted to be a CEO, or if it just kind of fell in your lap. All right, so we'll be, be great. right back. Yeah. In case you missed it, here is a clip from episode three with Boomer Foster, president of Long and Foster Real Estate.
2: Leadership is about um, doing, not saying. Mm Because, you know, you, you get a lot of vocal people who are profess to be leaders and they'll say one thing, but when you watch them perform, they'll do something completely different. Right. And I think you've got to have a consistency. Like I want to lead by example. If I, I don't want to ask somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So if we're talking about, you know, uh, managers or regional managers and you're talking about, you know, making contacts and recruiting and building mm-hmm. relationships. I I don't have legitimacy if I'm sitting in the ivory tower and saying, you guys need to be doing this. If all I'm doing is sitting in the ivory tower and not out doing that myself. So right. leadership by example is something that I learned in football because I was very vocal um, when I first got to college. And, mm-hmm. and, and by the time, you know, at the end, it wasn't about, you know, do as I do. It wasn't about do as I say.
0: All right, so we're back with uh, Jeff
1: Detweiler, CEO of Long & Foster Companies. Jeff, thanks again for coming in. It's my pleasure. Yeah, having and it's been time. great, John. We, we had a great time before the show, and yeah. uh, and now uh, we're rolling.
0: Yeah, well, I was actually getting a little nervous because uh, we were covering so much ground before we had the microphones on. Oh, <laughs> You know, you're like, okay, well, we got to run out of stuff here. So tell me, when did you, tell me about becoming a CEO at Long & Foster
1: Company. Did you want to be a CEO? Was that your goal? or did that just kind of fall into your lap? Yeah, no, it, it really wasn't. Uh, it unfolded in front of me like uh, so much uh, mm-hmm. has. Uh, I think I would go back to when I was in Minneapolis and I was working for a company called uh, RFC, which was the big bond uh, um, firm you know mm-hmm. we created securities and things like that uh, I was probably you know effectively the number two person there right. and, and it was great uh, and um, and we, we we grew the company I think I was the 200th employee and it was a little little company when I started and we grew it up and we did great things it was really mm-hmm. exciting but I was always number two and, and I had my boss the CEO was a great guy Bruce Paradis great guy uh, one of the favorite people I've ever worked for and um, he uh, but you're always number two you know Mm -hmm. and so there are decisions you know uh, that are made that uh, you know number one makes and number two listens. And then I went to California and uh, I worked for Countrywide, uh, which was then bought by Bank of America during the financial crisis. And uh, we had about seven different companies there. And the one company I worked for, I was number two. Uh, And uh, as my boss there, another great guy, Doug Jones, told me, he he said, look, we're we're partners in this thing, Mm -hmm. but I've got 51% voting rights and you have 49%. So that basically means number one, Gets the call, and number two listens on right. those calls. And um, and uh, when I was on Wall Street, in between Minneapolis and uh, and um, uh, countrywide, uh, I was in in that role also, kind mm-hmm. of behind the guy running the department and things mm-hmm. like that. So it, it was just this feeling like I wanted to be the guy. I wanted mm-hmm. to be, and I mean that in a non-gender specific sense. Sure. I, I just I wanted to be the one who was who had the 51% voting share. I wanted to be the one who was ultimately responsible, uh, for success or failure. And Mm -hmm. you really can't go look anywhere else. And so, uh, I found that opportunity at long and foster. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't originally there, you know, I originally came and I was the president and the COO of long and foster companies. And that's when Wes Foster was still here. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. worked for Wes, uh, and, uh, Wes had a lot more than fifty-one percent voting share, <laughs> <laughs> so, but we had a uh, we had a we had a we had a really good relationship. We had a lot of fun times together. There were a lot of stressful times together. But uh, once the acquisition occurred, you know, I did really become the COO. Uh, you know, I I was in that what I'll call the top spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the entire time that I've been here. Uh, and you learn a lot of things when you're in that top spot. Yeah. yeah. So what is it, you, you know, because I'm very, very happy,
0: we, we talked about before the show, I, I like being in number two position. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I think I spent most of my life wanting what you wanted was I wanted to be the guy, I wanted to be yeah. the one making all the decisions. But now the closer I get to that, I realize, you know what? It's the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Sometimes yeah. it's blue over there. Yeah. So when you were the number 2 guy compared to being the number 1 guy, how different is that from a workload perspective uh, from a obviously you love the the satisfaction of of being the CEO but is the workload that much
1: different or is it about the same? You have more decisions to make in a day? I think it's, uh, you know, here's one of the things, you know, you talk about the closer you get to it, the less you want it, exactly. you know, the more you learn about it. Yeah. Uh, and I had, I, this is what I've learned about being the guy, and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of being number one, the right. guy, right? What I learned is you're really hardly ever the guy. Yeah. You always work for somebody, and every time you get to a spot that it looks like from the outside that you're going to be the one, yeah. you're not. Yeah, and then you get to <laughs> the next spot, and you're still not the one. And right. and I had this conversation with a uh, with uh, somebody here at Long and Foster just last week, and and a friend of mine, and and talking about this concept and uh-huh. and I just said to him you're just you're just hardly ever the one right so you're we're always working for somebody you yeah. know and even in Big public companies, CEOs, uh, you know, are working for their board of directors, and Mm -hmm. the board of directors are working for shareholders. And Mm -hmm. so it just is – that's what I've learned. But uh, the big difference is, I think, between being sort of uh, in that 51% voting share versus the 49% is that – you know work never quits right mm-hmm. you never mm-hmm. go away because mm-hmm. it the buck stops with you right uh, and so you're you're 24/7 uh, 52 weeks a year um, yeah. and that's how it is now, yeah. now fortunately for me I grew up in my career in a fixed income environment meaning mm-hmm. I was a I was a trader on Wall Street I was a mm-hmm. bond trader mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I worked at uh, um, RFC for 10 years, we had a big uh, trading desk where we bought and sold securities. And so uh, your position, your bond position that you own never goes on vacation. It never goes, never has a weekend and it never goes home at night Right. and it never goes on vacation. So you sort of, I I learned to live with the fact that even when you're off, you're never off. You're always plugged in. You're always plugged in. You have to be. And so it hasn't been nearly as difficult for me, but I, I think that's what Uh, It gets exhausting Mm -hmm. uh, at times, just constantly being mm-hmm. kind of connected and plugged in. Mm-hmm. But it's not only me. It, yeah. my, our whole team here at Long & Foster is extraordinary in that. But right. that's what I would That's probably my biggest concern about uh, any executive position is just constantly being plugged in and yeah. not being able to unplug and recharge. It's a lot easier to be plugged in 24-7 when everything's going right. Uh, that it is. You know, that Saturday
0: afternoon when you check your email and there's uh,
1: no no in the box you're uh it's good yeah, yeah. it's, a good, feeling. it's yeah. a good feeling yeah so we obviously had a few of those uh days uh last year <laughs> yeah i can only imagine yeah. march 17th and august 23rd yeah yeah it was
0: yeah it was it was a really interesting thing the whole COVID transition i mean it was uh you know we went to work you know nick uh our engineer here and i've been working together pretty much constantly uh, remotely and you know doing doing these shows and we came to work on a thursday and and we said this is our last time we're going to see each other and we're going to go into lockdown and friday uh, this was really before just a little bit before the whole area shut down we were a day or two ahead of the curve And uh, it really was quite dramatic, you know, so I I can't even imagine I got a small team, you know, 10, 10, 12 people. If you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people
1: and now all of a sudden you're all working remotely, I know the pain we went through. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of consternation, right? And I I just remember our team sitting around a table. And uh, if you remember back then, John, is that there wasn't a lot of guidance. It was surprising. There was none. Big of a deal. There was little federal guidance. Everybody started looking to the states, Uh, obviously. Obviously, you know we operate all across a number of states, mm-hmm. and uh, there's all kinds of different stories coming out of each state, and so, uh, but there wasn't a lot of guidance anywhere and and i remember us sitting around the table and finally saying look this is the right thing for for our agents for our yeah. employees and for our customers we got to shut down and yeah. uh, i think it was it was probably 10 days to 2 weeks ahead of anybody else and yeah. it was a scary decision that we made and yeah. and i remember we we made the decision we adjourned we were walking out and uh, i just looked at boomer and i said I wonder when we'll sell another piece of real estate. Yeah, <laughs> so, little, little did you know. Oh boy, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But there were some scary times yeah. in, uh, in April without yeah. a doubt.
0: Well, you know what was weird is that it, it was eerily quiet. I mean there were no phone calls there was nothing to do and our team we grabbed onto this podcast project and we really all sank our teeth into it and yeah. it really kept us sane but but there was there, there was no traffic no emails no phone calls any outreach we did was met with radio silence and then it was just like, all of a sudden, we get a phone call. We get a second phone call. People start returning our emails. And then the floodgates opened. And I think everybody started to realize, you, you know, I think there's two things we didn't know. We didn't really know how infectious this disease was. Yeah. Nobody right. really knew. No, not we, and, and so we were wiping down our Amazon boxes and our groceries, right? right? Yeah. I mean, the groceries were coming, delivery, if you could get them delivered— You know, we were putting on rubber gloves and masks and wiping everything, the bags with the alcohol and all this stuff. And that's what they were telling us to do on the news.
1: Right. And then You wouldn't touch a doorknob, right? Exactly. You would Lysol your doorknobs, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And now I think we know it's not coming into your house on a right. Amazon box or, a, right. or or any box right. or, or your or your groceries, right? So we, we can let our guard down a little. But I think the other thing that we didn't know was how long is it gonna last? And now everybody is working and living and schooling and exercising from home and everybody needs a bigger house. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, and I think it all started to dawn on people at about the same time. And I think we're still in the middle of it yeah. uh, here a year later. We're just past the one-year anniversary. And I think the housing market is still crazy. There's no listings out there. It's uh, you, The construction uh, industry is being tested and strained to the max. You can't get supplies. So yeah. it's... Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's gone from, you know, this, this great unknown, and are we all going to get this, to right. now we've got a new way to live.
1: Yeah, well, without a doubt. And I think that, you know, in addition to a bigger house, which I think you're spot on, and everybody's saying— Uh, You know, I need this kind of a a space in my house now in this kind of a space. And uh, I think that there's also these migration trends that are showing up, you know, that are all related to the same thing. But if I'm going to be working in this house a little bit more, like, do I necessarily want to do it here versus maybe there? Right. Uh, Exactly. And so you see some of those migration trends. And I think that I think for where we're sitting right now here in Northern Virginia and in the capital region, Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, you, you know that the the driving force used to be how close can I get to D.C., yes, right? Yes, yes. And uh, living in this life of concentric circles that, you know, the farther out I go, the longer it takes. The right. longer it takes, the more grueling the commute is, right. the commute but attacks. I can get yeah. a better deal on my house. And right. so there's this trade-off. And, and I think that we're in a really interesting time mm-hmm. is that all of a sudden there's this opportunity in mm-hmm. these much further out concentric circles right. that there never was for the last two decades probably in this region. Right. And and you know I'll just bring up
0: an interesting stat that Boomer Foster brought up, you know, f- f- 15 episodes ago and that is that pre-COVID 5% of Americans worked and lived full-time from home and post-COVID it's going to be 25%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So even when we solve the disease and we get vaccinated there's a lot of people that aren't going to go back to the right. old way. We have a new way of living now. Right.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I I think that you know we at Long and Foster we're, we're um you know we're we're working with that. We used to discourage remote work. Right. For our employees. Yep. Uh, and uh, and uh, and we had some skepticism about mm-hmm. how efficient and productive you could be. Everybody learns, right? Yep. And we learned a lot last year from our employees and what they were able to do. So uh, the we haven't figured out what tomorrow looks like in terms yeah. of our re- remote work policy. But just to give you a perspective is I, I see a third of our employees working remotely. Yeah. Uh, back office and headquarters employees, I see a third of them working remotely at all times. Not the That's same great. third, right. but just rotating. rotating. Yeah. And uh, I just can't imagine companies in 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 any of the big metropolitan areas Telling their people that you got to get back on the road twice a day, yeah, and uh, you know you got to grind it out That's for right. an hour each way to get here. Uh, I think that I think you'll lose employees, and I think they'd be, there'd be a mutiny. Yeah, uh, the the thing that we do think is important is. We do want to be together, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do want to be together, uh, maybe not 100% of the time, but we right. want to be together. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so we want to make sure that the time that people are working together is time that's used to really – Help develop each other and bond and things like that, and and obviously you know uh, you know we're sitting in uh, in a great one of our offices here in McLean, right. and um, uh, it's a great office, and I'm sure you guys have a lot of fun here, and you guys are certainly very very efficient and productive, mm-hmm. but uh, it's important for us in all of our offices, particularly here in the field, to get into the office. You know, mm-hmm. the Long and Foster culture is an important part of our. Uh, of who we are and COVID has taken its toll on yes. that aspect absolutely. of our
0: business. absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree. You know, we, we talk about that in our team often yeah. and we make great efforts to try to uh, get together in, in very small groups uh, yeah. occasionally and it's, and it's important. Yeah. So looking, looking, looking back over the last year, what are you most proud of? What are the, is there one decision that you looked at um, that, that you said, this made a really big difference in our success this year? Uh, and conversely, is there
1: one decision you made that you wish you'd made differently? Uh, You you know, I I think that that uh, decision I referred to in the middle of March last year, which was well ahead of uh, any of our competitors and well ahead of any Mm -hmm. of the states in terms of shutting down, locking down, sending Mm -hmm. our people home uh, and saying that, you know— you're the most important, right? Our our agents, our employees, and our customers are the most important people. We've got to protect their health, and the health of the business will come second, and we'll just see how that unfolds. And and look, we're in an innovative uh, industry, and we Mm -hmm. certainly have uh, a lot of innovative people here at Long & Foster, and and, uh, all of our agents and our employees responded really really well mm-hmm. to that and we were able to serve our customers who you know Absolutely. isn't that an interesting thing is <laughs> <It> that is. <laughs> you know one of the things if you just will humor me for a second you know on, on these lockdowns and the gov- governor's locking states down one of the states pennsylvania for example uh locked down and said that real estate wasn't essential right and that's very different than say here in virginia where real estate was essential yeah uh, and in essence what they said is you know you can't conduct real estate business you can't You can't show a house. You can't do anything, even if you take all kinds of precautions. Well, what about the thousands and thousands of people in the state of Pennsylvania and other states similar to that Mm -hmm. that were in the middle of a transaction? Maybe they sold their house and they needed to buy a new house. Uh, That it was just people in a position of authority didn't think about. Yeah, you can lock down, but you can't lock down people's lives. You can't right. turn off their life. And there were thousands of people in the middle of a transaction that didn't have a choice. It wasn't just yeah. something fun to do to go out and look at a house. And and so I, I was super proud of our of our realtors to be able to uh, muster mm-hmm. the innovation and, adapt. and creativity yep. and adapt and, and solve those issues for those customers immediately. And then subsequently, uh, you know, we... We got to closing—we did not have one deal that didn't get to closing— in 2020, because of COVID, because Wonderful. of that disruption itself. And, uh, you know, our, our folks in the uh, in the settlement services and title companies, you know, we filled them up with masks and things like that mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had outdoor settlements and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and we went totally virtual with our loan officers and right. just a- everybody just found a way. And as you know, you know, the business did really well in mm-hmm. terms of, you uh, production levels mm-hmm. and things like that. I, I
0: think what maybe a lot of folks listening may not realize is that I think as real estate professionals, we deal with challenges every day. Every single transaction, every single one, yep. has a home inspection hurdle, has an appraisal hurdle, has a negotiation hurdle. So I think realtors in general are wired to overcome whatever uh, challenge lands on on your desk. Wow. So when, when COVID came along, I think it, hit us all by surprise obviously sure. who would have ever thought no, who right. would have ever, right. You could have never predicted this. It's only a movie. Yeah, exactly right. right. What, what was it? Uh, Dustin Hoffman outbreak. Oh, no, that's, yeah, Dustin outbreak. Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, anything you would have done differently. Is there any one decision you look at and go, man, I really, um, wish I had done this differently.
1: Uh, in, uh, In 2020—this sounds ridiculous, and I'm sure there are, but major decisions, um, I I think we made—there are no major decisions that uh, I look back on and say, that was a big mistake, should have done something different. Um, You know, there's smaller decisions that, sure, Mm -hmm. I would have done something different. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that uh, another— Day I mentioned August twenty third. That was the worst day. That was worse than that March day because that was the day it was a Sunday, and that was the day that I was notified of this ransomware attack. Yeah, uh, at oh, Long and Foster. That's right. That's right. And yeah. uh, and we had to make the decision on the phone, myself and Barry Redler, yeah, uh, to shut down Long and Foster right. companies, and right. uh, and we did that. And boy, that was a lonely. Uh, Feeling (laughs) that was a lonely feeling, pit in the stomach feeling, and things like that. But probably the proudest thing, uh, I I think everybody did a great job uh, with COVID and the way everybody pulled together and responded. But uh, I thought it was extraordinary in our outage at Long and Foster companies, and um, fortunately. Uh, most of our non-real estate businesses, you know, yeah. the non-brokerage businesses, were not impacted systems-wise. Those we were able to isolate, mm-hmm. but the brokerage business certainly was, and um, and we shut everything down. And it was like, oh my gosh, when are we ever going to be able to start things up? And I, I can't imagine this. And and. Uh, the The brokerage team, uh, Gary Scott and Boomer Foster, and all the regional managers, mm-hmm. and then all the branch managers, and and my entire team was uh, just extraordinary in terms of the way that they all stepped up. Nobody complained, mm-hmm. and and I think back on that, and is nobody complained nobody pointed fingers nobody said it's so-and-so's fault Uh, Mm -hmm. everybody just kind of uh, stepped up in a major way and did what they had to do fine it was probably our finest hour Mm -hmm. at Long and Foster Mm -hmm. and and it'll never really be seen from the outside like I saw it from the inside yeah 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 fantastic we did a great job well thanks the the team did a great job and and everybody you know I was also thoroughly amazed uh, with our realtor community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought we were going to get skewered Yeah, uh, with yeah. that. And uh, the amount of support and um, the professionalism mm-hmm. of our realtors was, you know, just, it, it was, gosh, it was kind of uh, heartwarming, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just on a horrible day. Uh, and I say that in multiple days afterwards, felt so much better because yes. everybody pulled together and was supportive. Yeah,
0: well, the bad times, Make the good times all that much better, you no, know? Without
1: it. I mean, it, it's easy to be good in the good times. It is. It's yeah. the bad times that you have to look at. And I've, yeah. you know, it, it, you say that, John, and I know there's a lot of uh, sayings, right, and cliches about that uh, mm-hmm. and adversity and things like that. But that was one of the things that I was sharing with my team. The outage was so much tougher for us than mm-hmm. COVID because everybody was in the same proverbial boat with COVID. Every business, every competitor, but the outage was only us. Yeah, Uh, and at a time, when the technology was most needed. Well, isn't I mean, that the irony of the whole is. thing? We went yeah. from kind of this some technology and a lot of uh, kind of personal relationships yeah. <laughs> to all all virtual, and then all of a sudden, overnight, we had to stop yeah. all virtual stuff and go back to everything manual. And yeah. it was like, you got to be kidding me! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like well, uh, we're, we're being tested. tested. We're yeah. being tested. But uh, yeah, it is. I I had shared with the team all the time. Is like, you guys will look back and. This, you'll you'll say I was as good as I can be during that yeah. time, and and I think they were fantastic. And that's I look back at my career, and it it would be times like this that um, were. Uh, really tested me and mm-hmm. actually made me grow and more and that was I had shared with my team is that as horrible as this is this isn't the worst thing that's happened to me in my career right. so, <laughs> so could, be worse. could yeah, be worse so we're not going to talk about that today no. Yeah. No. all right
0: let's take a quick break and when we come back I want to hear a little bit about what it was like to work with the uh, legendary uh, Wes uh, uh, Foster okay. and uh, some, some of your other uh, items of value that you brought for us Great. today excellent we'll be right back I'm John Jorgensen, and if you want to learn more about buying a home or selling your existing home, contact us through the show. We work with an incredible network of professionals who can help you get through the process smoothly. Again, that's gowithjohn.com. So we're back with uh, Jeff Detweiler. Thanks again, Jeff, for coming in. I mean, I'm having such a great time. Uh, oh, it's awesome. Listening to it. your Thanks, stories. Jeff. Yeah, this is awesome. So, so I uh, really think very highly of Wes Foster. You know, I remember in in 2004, five, six, seven, uh, when I was a new agent, Wes would routinely come in uh, to the sales meetings uh, here at the, the, the Long and Foster McLean office, and I know for a fact he went to all of his offices, uh, or most of them, right? I guess I don't know for a fact if he went to all of them, but I've I've heard that he would routinely go into the offices and – He's a great guy, had great stories, would uh, really enjoyed interacting with the agents, wanted to hear their stories and uh, their their things they were happy about and things they were not happy about. But what was it like? And I've heard some stories oh, boy. <laughs> from, from
1: corporate, right? Yeah.
0: But so what was your experience working with uh, Wes? Tell us about Wes. Well,
1: gosh, could go on and on with that. You know, obviously, for those that don't know Wes, you know Wes very well, but Wes was an Icon to our industry, mm-hmm. and uh, and as I got, yeah, I was new to the industry when I joined in late 2009 and mm-hmm. 2010, and I because of my role that I filled here at Long and Foster, I got exposure to a lot of these icons who really they built the they built the industry in the 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. and 90s, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. and created the foundation that we're all operating on now. Uh, but of that group. Um, Wes was uh, Wes was a leader amongst them. You know, always doing first. And boy, the stories I would hear from them about Wes and the things that he would do. And he was just he was he was quite a person and, ex- and extraordinary. Uh, you know, I do wish that uh, in some ways, you know, if I were here a little earlier, you know, when he was at the very top of his game, uh, I think when I got here, you know, Wes was uh, well into his 70s at -hmm. that point in time, and he had already kind of set sights on taking his foot off the pedal a little Mm -hmm. bit and Mm -hmm. things like that. But uh, so, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind about Wes Foster is nobody can work a phone like Wes Foster, right. he would he, he would pound out a hundred phone calls a day. You know, he w- wouldn't come into the office every day, mm-hmm. uh, but the days that he came into the office, and he wasn't there at, at, at eight or nine, and he wasn't there at five, yeah. but he'd pound out a hundred phone calls, and yeah. he would just call branch managers and agents and everybody, and he would have the three-minute conversation, and he would build a list that mm-hmm. was four pages long that day Mm -hmm. Uh, and then every our our schedule was kind of the same thing is that the days that he would come in when he would first come in i would that would the first thing i would do is go over and sit with him in his office right and uh and we would go through his list and he would pull out four pages yeah and we'd go through this whole list and then i'd have to take all these things off the list (laughs) and go go do whatever Wes said that we were going to do he committed to with his bigger than 51 percent voting share yes. right yeah, uh, yeah. And, and here you go number one yeah. get this yeah. done <laughs> get this fishy. how's it feel being number one yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so we would do that but uh he he was he was pretty funny in the sense that when you would talk to people on who were on the other end of the phone is Wes would call you up. He had that super baritone voice, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. you never doubted who it was on the phone. And he would ask a couple of, you know, really, uh, drilling questions, you know, to get into whatever he wanted to talk about. But when he was done, he was done. He yeah. was like, you could be in the middle of the sentence, and if he was done, it was, okay, good dark into your As yeah. <laughs> <And> like <laughs> you're like, oh, but, he would just hang up, and I had many people tell me about that. But he was extraordinary in, in working things out on the phone. Uh, I, uh, he was um, one uh, of the things that we did when I got to know him the best is that uh, he was a notorious driver mm-hmm. uh, when I got to know him. And uh, and what I mean by that is, uh his new cars, like within about ninety days, would always he'd always start to customize them for whatever reason. He liked to like push in this back quarter panel of his car, <laughs> maybe the bumper. He liked it to have like a black mark across the right. front of it. It was interesting what he would do. Yeah. But But uh, so he would, uh, uh, we would try to keep him off the road as much as possible. We felt that was doing our community service by keeping right. Wes off the road. So I, on occasion, we would go visit branches or we'd go to big regional function. And so we'd get in the car and I'd drive him and uh, we'd have a three hour drive down to you know, Hampton Roads mm-hmm, or up mm-hmm, to Philadelphia mm-hmm. or whatever. And he would come in the car and he'd get settled in, and he would get his uh, he'd get his list out, and his list would be pages and pages and pages. There would be rides where he would go through every single branch in our uh, two hundred branches or our one hundred seventy five yeah. branches at the time. What about this branch? What about that branch? And and you would talk about all these things. But then you know, after about an hour, hour and a half, he was done. Yeah. He put the list down, and for the next hour and a half, I could get Wes to talk about his days in high school mm-hmm. his days at VMI mm-hmm. uh, going to college he loved VMI so and tell us tell us told... a, tell us a story that you well, think Well I'm not sure Betty knows these stories so I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell oh, those I got stories. You. Okay okay <laughs> he would he just it was uh, They were all innocent stories but right. VMI was a military yes. uh, academy and you know you are very disciplined and things you got to do but you yeah. know those guys would go out and have a lot of fun yep, and, yep, and, yep, and, yep, and yep, things I like got that. You. Yeah. And so when uh, he would also talk about when he um, when he first got into the business, he he lived out in California for a while. Mm-hmm. Like you never think of Wes Foster living in California, but no, he lived that's out in California. Right yeah, there. yeah. And uh, he would talk about he was dating some girl in northern part of california and he was stationed more central california i might have my details wrong but yeah. you know he would have to make this 120 mile jaunt uh you know back to be you know to be ready for work the next morning kind mm-hmm. of a thing and mm-hmm. um i think he tested the uh the limits of the california state patrol you know yeah. <laughs> uh he was a fast driver at the time and he would tell me a lot of those stories and he would talk about stories about being um Stationed over in Germany, he mm-hmm. was—he—he uh, he was with a group over in Germany where he was stationed, and he just. Uh You know what? I bet you Wes Foster would have been a great friend. He he was a fun-loving guy, uh, I think, really was one who embraced life. Uh, And obviously, you know, he built uh, an extraordinary company or companies, did a great job, built a lot of great relationships. But so interesting is that I used to ask him, you know, he obviously did very, very well for himself financially. Uh, right. He's a quintessential entrepreneur, um, and uh, you know, if, if you ask him about kind of setting out to accomplish some of the things he accomplished, he would just say, "I never, I never set out to accomplish." You know the things that I did. You know right. he just took a day at a time, and he was always uh, striving to do better. And he would always set shorter term goals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of this success and, and quite honestly, some of the wealth that surrounds him was not the thing for Wes mm-hmm. uh and um you know he I think he like I don't know exactly how he lived but I mean I always got the impression that he was a pretty frugal guy and yeah and things like that particularly compared to others that I would see uh you know in his circle and things right. like that and so just a great guy and I I used to always I used to tease him about Boy, through his career and hearing some of his stories, and uh, I would say, you're the guy in the casino that puts all your chips on red, and you just let it kept rolling and rolling and rolling, yeah. and you never took any chips off the table, yeah. and you had a huge mound of chips at yeah. the end of the night, and yeah. uh, and uh, you know he just uh, he was extraordinary in, in that function. Yeah. Um, can I tell you one story? A, a funny story. So yeah. So when I first took the job. Yes. Uh, Wes was having a bout with headaches. He, he suffered from migraines, uh, mm-hmm. at, and particularly at the beginning when I got there. And I, I think, I don't, I don't think I saw him for the first 60 days, uh, when I got to work, mm-hmm. uh, because he was just really under the weather and not feeling right. well. So, he wasn't coming in. Uh, there was another guy that was here uh, that was in late, left early. You know, that was just his traffic pattern. He'd yeah. been with Wes forever from the beginning, right. George Eastman. Yeah. And um, and then the, the guy that was the president of Long and Foster Companies before I was there, Dave Stevens— had been um, nominated to. Uh, President of Mortgage Bankers. Well, FHA. FHA, yeah, right. At the okay, time. that's right. And so he was being, uh, he was going through the confirmation style. So I think it had been like kind of six months since Dave was really here being yeah. serious. So <laughs> the, 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 what comes to mind is the saying is when, when the cat's away, yes. uh, the mice will play. Right. So we had recently, you know, about probably 2 years earlier moved into the uh, Long and Foster headquarters in Chantilly which you George you've Carter been at. Way yeah yep, George Carter Way enormous building mm-hmm has an enormous parking garage Mm -hmm. connected to it, 1,300 parking spaces, because from what I understand is Long and Foster had to move two times prior into new buildings because ran out of parking spaces. And Russ said, I'm never going to run out of parking spaces again. So he got 1,300 (laughs) parking spaces. And we had this, we were the only tenants in this five-story building, Uh, something like 350,000 square feet, yeah. you know, enormous. Uh, you've seen it, but yes. not everybody has seen it. But just an enormous, massive uh, well, brick well, so structure. For the
0: folks that drive up and down 28, it's yep. the huge building that looks like a giant house. It's yeah. a commercial Big colonial building. colonial-looking exactly building. Exactly, Williamsburg yeah. Colonial. Yeah. I think it has
1: the record for the most bricks in the state of Virginia oh, or something like that. absolutely has to. It's insane. It's so, so I start work there, and I and uh, on the interior of it, there is this uh, area of how the building was designed in an executive area, and so yeah. it was really only Wes, myself, and this other gentleman, George Eastman, that had offices in that executive area, and it was kind of cordoned off to everything else. Well, uh, you know, Wes wasn't coming in, George was coming in kind of late, yeah. and f- f- Every morning I would drive in early, new job, right? So I'd get there at like seven, uh, drive in. There wasn't a, a single car in that 1,300 uh, slot parking structure. Yeah. I would walk into the building and up from the second floor to the fourth floor. Wouldn't see a soul. And the same thing I'd leave, I'd stay there till maybe seven 30 at night, just pouring through mm-hmm. kind of reports and books and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Wouldn't see a soul. Yeah. Wouldn't see a single car in it. So, uh, I'm getting towards the end of the week, started on Monday. It's now Thursday, and I haven't seen but two people in the yeah. building. There were two people that would come down and just bring information to me a pile food. it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, I don't think there was any food. I don't think I was eating anything. And uh, and they would just pile stuff on, on my desk. And I called my wife on Thursday afternoon, and I said, you're gonna think I'm crazy, Mary. Do you remember, John, do you remember the show Punked, Ashton Crusher? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, where they yeah, play these absolutely. like elaborate tricks. Yeah. I said to my wife, I said, I think I'm on punked. <laughs> I think they rented out this big empty office building, yeah. and there's nobody here. And they and they 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 hired me, and here's this guy Detweiler that's yeah. sitting in this office <laughs> all alone, and he thinks he's running this big huge company with ten thousand agents and a yeah. thousand or two thousand employees, and there's there's nobody here. Yeah, that's nobody hilarious. here. So it wasn't until like the tenth business day that I actually saw somebody other than these two people, and I realized it's yeah. it's a little bit different now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now and now it's back to empty again because well, COVID, it back right? To empty. Yeah, yeah. So it we, is back to empty. Yeah, yeah. so everything uh,
1: old is new again. That's right. <laughs> it's just like bell bottoms. I'm still waiting for elephant bottoms to come <laughs> right. back, right? right. Those right. jeans. Right.
0: Fantastic. Yep. That's good stuff, Jeff. Yep. Good yep. stuff. So tell us, tell us some of your lessons uh, from the road. So you uh, were gracious enough. I asked you. If uh, you could share a couple of business related tidbits, which I ask everybody, right if yeah. you if you're talking to folks
1: out there that are running a company, what are what are uh, some of the things that you think are important? Yeah so uh, you know I, I thought about a couple of things, John, and these are real simple things and I think that uh I've learned them in my position here, my role here, and throughout my career, but uh, these are things that would serve us all well in Mm -hmm. life or or in business, regardless of what your role is. Uh, The first one I would just say is, um, good communications is so hard. Uh, I think it's underappreciated the value of good communications versus kind of mediocre or bad communications. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's overestimated how hard it really is to communicate. Completely agree with you. And, you know, just on that front is like, how hard could it be? You know, you you, you ask a question, I answer. It's yeah. like, how hard can that be? But that simple exchange between us can get all fouled up, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And And does every day. All
0: all the time. Yeah.
1: All the time. And when you start dealing on a, on a larger and larger scale, um, if you start dealing instead of uh, you and your friend, or maybe you and your spouse, start dealing with you and your family, it gets a little bit more complicated because there's more people and it just gets exponentially more complicated. And I can't tell you how challenge? How much time we commit to trying to be good communicators throughout Long and Foster? And it's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that uh, n- as hard as it is, and as valuable as good communications is. Mm-hmm. As companies, we seldom ever try to develop our people or train them in how to be a good communicator. Uh, I really was benefited one time earlier in my career where we spent an extraordinary amount of time with – we had a communications coach come in, and the executive team had access to the communications coach and had to learn about how to communicate and and Mm -hmm. really – more about like what goes wrong that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say something, if I say the door is blue on the house. Um, I think I know what I'm saying. You may take a door as blue on the house and and interpret it as something different. Absolutely. And we get we kind of get off the rails there from the get-go. So mm-hmm. that good communications is something that is really important. I think yeah. that you know. Well, in, and, and let, let me jump in on yeah. that for a second. And I and I say this all the
0: time because I want people to get value out of this uh, podcast. Yeah. And you know one of the things I preach is video, 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 because I learned early on. When when you're doing a lot of communicating with a lot of people, when you're communicating with the public, that the public and this is just my perspective, they're speaking, if they're calling you to interview you to be a realtor, they're also interviewing two or three other people usually. Right. If they're calling me to learn about building a house, they're usually talking to two or three other builders. And many, many, many times early on in my career, people would tell me that I told them something that I know for a fact I never said. Because if you ask me a question, there's an answer yes. to the question. Yes. There's not three different answers to the same question. Yes. So putting things in video I think brought a lot of comfort to my customers because not only could they hear me say it on the phone I could say, "Hey you know what let me I've got this conversation recorded in video let, let me send it to you so yeah. I, I do understand how hard yeah. that is and yeah. uh, and and within team members and training and all that it is it is uh, it's
1: a huge challenge yeah, yeah. yeah. An- another thing you and I briefly talked about it uh, during the timeout or the break was that uh, you know in the context of communications, Uh, Email and texts are dangerous. Mm -hmm, Uh, You know, pick up the phone and call somebody or go see them and call them. The number of times that people get off the rails and all bent out of shape because they misinterpret what somebody means or is saying in a text or a communication. And you've seen these change. They go on and on and on. And they deteriorate into an argument. Right. You know, I don't know who these people type a lot better than I do because it would take me forever, (laughs) you know, uh, to to type out some of that. But it's just be very careful about using texts Mm -hmm. and emails because they're misinterpreted all the time by the receiver. Right. And uh, you you pick up the phone uh, and I think there's less lost in that. Yeah. And I
0: think our colleague uh, Barry Redler has said to me many, many, many times uh, that if you can't solve something, in three volleys in an email pick up the phone and speak like humans yeah right Yeah. yeah so one two three if it's not resolved Get on the phone. But you're absolutely right.
1: And, uh, you know, one uh, one of the reasons that I I think, and I'm sure that you would agree, is that uh, I think we all feel emboldened Mm -hmm. to some point on an email where Mm -hmm. we lose some some of our just our common decency and courtesy that we have when we speak to each other. You know, I think we feel more accountable to each other when I'm sitting here talking to you. Yes. You know, Uh, and um, but. You know, we we seem to lose some of that in a text or email. And you read some of these emails, are are you serious? You really wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, uh, you know, we just have to have uh, some more discretion on those things. I yeah. would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so another thing that I I think is interesting, and uh, you were talking about. You know, having a discussion with Nick here also, and just different points of view and things like that. Absolutely. And one of the things that I have really learned at Long and Foster, uh, and it's come to serve me well from my family and from everywhere, is that you know, if you think about, let's say, conflict or or disagreements or not agreeing, Mm -hmm. and um, and the the idea is that. You know, there's not just one right answer, and the, the idea that depending on—the world looks different to people depending on where they sit and they're looking at it. Mm-hmm. So I think in a family, if you're a mother or a father, it looks way different than if you're a—, a, a a son or a daughter, right. right? A brother or a sister. It looks way different. Not not that it's anybody's wrong. Nobody's right. It just looks different. And in business, I see that all the time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I I have conversations all the time with people that uh, get so worked up about somebody has a difference of opinion of me or doesn't get what I'm saying. And I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with that. The world looks different to them, Mm -hmm. and it should, because Mm -hmm. they see it from a different place than you see it. And I think that if we can just try to appreciate the person that's across from us or are on the other end of the phone and just appreciate why. You don't have to agree with it, but appreciate why right. they see it like it is and maybe ask some questions. Right, and I, and I think it goes back to the uh, seven habits of highly
0: effective people, which yep. I brought up earlier. I think... The, and, and my team, everybody working with me knows that, that that we talk about email all the time, and I'll share a little something about that in a second. But seek first to understand and then be understood is habit five of, yeah. of the seven habits of Stephen Covey's book. And probably the single most valuable tool that I have ever learned how to use in business. Because if it, and if you're in sales or if you're providing a service, if you go in and just start talking and you just tell people what you're going to do, you may or may not be on the mark. I literally uh, want to ask everybody, you know, tell me what it is you need. What sure. would you like to learn from me uh, before I start talking? And yeah. and that that seeking to understand, there is a. Uh, no matter what side of any kind of a conversation you're on, when you take a moment to ask the other person, well, tell me what's your position and right. what, what be, before you start talking, it makes a big difference. It really is a great decompressor.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that's very well said and it's uh, critical importance. Best tool in business is your ears. Absolutely. You know, Yeah, we, we all could use them more. Yeah. Uh, and so the, uh, you know, uh, talking about um, uh, some other things, just, Conflict and things like that in business, you know, mm-hmm. it obviously it happens all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, I find myself as a mediator yes. uh, quite often. I mean, people will come to me with complaints or come to me with uh, seeking that I change something, and yeah. um, I found that it's you know, there's two sides to every story, yes, and it's not it's not that anybody is necessarily not telling the truth, but I think we all. We all remember things a little differently. You and I were just talking mm-hmm. about that, right? Yes. We all remember things a little differently. Video helps us remember right. exactly how it was. Exactly. Uh, but we all interpret things a little bit differently. And there there's always two sides to every story. And so we should never jump to conclusion mm-hmm. uh, when we hear one side of the story. And uh, and we should always, as you seek to understand. And I always say to my team is like, when we have an issue with somebody, someone, it's like, well, you know, let's get the other side to this story because there's always two sides, at least two sides, and quite often it's more than two sides. And and the truth really exists someplace in the middle of all of those. So there's three sides at least. Every story. Well, yeah, Yeah. uh, quite often, quite often. So. Uh, and then the last thing, I say that this one is tongue-in-cheek, but yeah. we were talking about that, is that uh, I share this with uh, with my team when somebody's coming in and talking about how ridiculous a, a particular employee is and, and this, mm-hmm. that, and the other thing, and, and can you imagine that? And, and the same thing with maybe a customer relationship issue. And I just said, well, you know, you are right. Business would be a lot easier without any customers and without any employees, but... Uh, yeah, we wouldn't have much to do around no, we here no. if we didn't have that. So, yeah. uh, you know, customer relations and employee relations, is, that's that's what we do every day is, yeah. you know, basically solve problems. When it works well, it works well. Right. It's about how well can you solve a problem. Right. And yeah. if you have good policies and
0: good procedures and people follow them, things are uh, generally running more smoothly when With they're not. Without a doubt. Without yeah. a yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Jeff Detweiler, thank you. I'm humbled that you oh. came in today. I really enjoyed the
1: conversation. And uh, Thanks, Sean. Sure. I appreciate the invitation. I just wanted to tell you, you know, it's so awesome that you put me so high on the priority list, just number 16. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's a <laughs> well, hundred
1: people waiting outside. Well, you
0: know, the truth of the matter is, is we actually tried, we called over to corporate to get you on the show and they said, Jeff's really busy, but we got this guy Boomer. Uh, <laughs> we can send him over if you want. And I said, you know, okay, we can do that. Well, uh,
1: yeah. I, it, it has been a lot of fun and I yeah. tease you, but it is hard getting on your show than it is getting a vaccine that's true
0: right that's true john thank you very much and uh,
1: congratulations on everything that you're up to all right thank you jeff
0: all right jeff detweiler thanks for coming in had a great time talking to you i know you're going to be back on the show here in the next few weeks when we can talk more about the direction of the company and where you want to take it i'm looking forward to that conversation if you guys want to learn more about Jeff Detweiler and the Long and Foster companies, you can find a link to his profile at the episode page at GoWithJohn. you got to go, go with John.com and go to Jeff Detweiler's episode page, and we will link to his uh, profile over at Long and Foster. Until next time, this is John Jorgensen. Go build something extraordinary.